is an interesting book because in Ephesians, hey, Stephen, I didn't have that program open, did I, for the recording? Okay, Stephen's on it. He's quick, like a cat. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is interesting for several reasons, but one of which is that for the first two chapters, Paul spends all of his time talking about who we are in Christ. Now, why would Paul need to tell us, why would he need to tell the Ephesians who they are in Christ? Does anybody in here ever struggle with their identity? Like, who am I? I know adults that are older than me that have spent their entire life going after dreams and chasing things that had nothing to do with their true identity, but they've been trying them out, trying to figure out what it is they were made for. And we were all made for something specific. Do you know that? Something specific. And many times we get frustrated because we start trying to direct ourselves in different ways and we become spread out so thin and never fulfilled because we're trying to do all kinds of stuff we were never made to do. And that's frustrating because we were made to do a specific thing. Just like if you open up a toolbox or a craft drawer and you look in there and you see all these tools, they, you know, scissors were not made to hammer things. Butter knives were not made to be a screwdriver. Now, I will say that many times, and in my growing up, every one of our butter knives had a bend in it because it was either a screwdriver or it was a pry bar. Now, it worked, but it was not the best, right? So how many bends do we have to put in ourselves before we figure out that we weren't made to be a screwdriver? Before we figure out we weren't made to be a pry bar? How many? We beat ourselves up trying to be something we were never meant to be. So Paul spends all this time developing and explaining to these Ephesians, here's who you are. Whether you feel that way or not, here's who you are specifically in Christ. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know what he's given to us, not just salvation, but our inheritance and our adoption. He talks about how we've been adopted into the family of God, to be related, to be blood relatives, blood-bought relatives of the God of creation, the one who sent his son. He is our sibling, and yet he's the one that paid it all so we could be. He adopted us. He bought us back from the life of sin and sinfulness. And so he develops that point, and then he explains that the riches that we have according to Christ and all that he's done, are not riches like this world has to offer. You ever heard the song that says, this world has nothing for me? All I have is Christ. That's true because the riches that we can gain, even though they help us temporarily, they mean nothing in the spectrum of eternity. God doesn't care about gold. He doesn't care about silver. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that he paves the roads with it. I mean, it would be like, Handing God some asphalt, and he's like, great, let's make a road. It doesn't earn anything. And so when he explains to us all that we are in Christ, he spends the first two chapters doing that. And he does that specifically to explain to them who they are so then they can move forward and learn who they're called to be. Because I don't know about you guys, but as I know and I learn who I am in Christ, I'm slowly learning who I'm called to be in Christ how he's gifted me, how he's prepared me, and what he wants me to do with my life. 
And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, he goes on and he explains and he says that I pray for you constantly. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And he explains what he prays for them. And the main purpose of his prayer is he's praying that God would open up our eyes. He would, the New Living Translation says that God would flood our eyes with light. He wants to enlighten us. Not the kind of enlightenment where you sit in a room by yourself and you contemplate your navel and you say, Aum, for hours and hours, right? Not Eastern mysticism, but that God himself, who is the source of light, would shine his light so strongly on us that we would see things for what they really are. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the light that goes in it is actually darkness, but we think that it's light, how great is the darkness that is in us? So God has to open our eyes to the truth. And when he does that, the beauty of it is we're no longer blind like we actually are before Christ. I once was lost, I once was blind, and then God shined his light on me and he revealed the truth. The truth sets men free. And so in chapter 2, after he's prayed for them that God would open their eyes to the truth, he reminds them of where they came from. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know many people, and I myself am one of them, who I forget where I come from. Now, we live in an area where most people that get to a certain point, they go, you know what, I'm getting the heck out of Dodge. I don't want to be in Arcadia Valley anymore. And that hurts because many of us that live here, we love it. You know, maybe it's not South County or, you know, some big city, but it's home to us. It's where we've become comfortable and we love the people here. It's a tight-knit community. People here are very loyal and faithful and hard-headed. So I fit right in, you know. And so the beauty of that is that because we are loyal, because we are faithful people, because we are hard-headed, once we figure out who we are, we can be hard-headed about the right things, you know. And so Paul explains to them, and he reminds them, here's who you are, here's who you once were, and despite all that, here's what God did anyway. And I think we need that reality check once in a while so that we don't think too highly of ourselves. So he goes on in chapter 2, and he says this. He says, And you... He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others." just like everybody else. And I love this because he says there, among whom, verse 3, also we all. He includes himself. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about the Apostle Paul, I think of one of the greatest missionaries that the Bible gives us a narrative on what he did with his life. And I look at Paul and I'm like, he is the man. Like, next grader is like Jesus. So if that's the case then Paul must have, 
you know, if you don't know his story fully, you could very easily go, man, he must have been raised in a Christian home with a godly family and just always follow Jesus. And I've had people talk to me that way. I could be at work and somebody goes the other day, he goes, are you really a preacher? You know, and I'm like, well, kind of, you know. But, but, but it, and what I mean by kind of is I don't see myself as a Billy Graham. I see myself as more of a pastor that teaches the word of God and feeds God's sheep. But my point is, is that people that don't know you, that know you're a Christian now, will get this idea that you're perfect, that you never made any mistakes. And if that was the case, I never would have needed Jesus. And so Paul includes himself in this, and he says, we all once walked and conducted ourselves in these things, the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were slaves to ourselves, our desires. And so he says, he made you alive. He starts that in verse 1, who were once dead in trespasses and sins. So let's start there. How many people have you talked to or maybe you've thought this before, that, you know, I wasn't so good, but then God made me better. I wasn't good, but God made me good. And the reality is, is God didn't make you good. You were dead. You showed up to Jesus as a crawling corpse. You stinketh. You know, that story about Lazarus. Lazarus was, Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus was dead he had died. Jesus didn't show up for three days. And then when he came to the tomb, they said, oh, if you'd only been here sooner, you could have helped. You could have healed him. And Jesus said, why don't you open up the tomb? And they said, oh, we can't open up the tomb. It's going to stink in there. And the King James says that. It says, by now he stinketh. Like, you don't open that thing. You make sure there's plenty of flowers that smell great. And, you, you know, you don't get close to the entrance. But he said, open that thing. And they're thinking, this is, that's not a good idea. But when Jesus spoke after they opened it, he said, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? Lazarus stood up. He walked out. And he was covering grave clothes. He had the evidences that he'd been in there for three days. This was no trick. They realized for the very first time, many of them that were there, they realized that Jesus took a dead man and made him alive. And we're so surprised by that. But what he's saying in this passage is that's where we were before Christ. We weren't just like slightly bad or I broke a couple rules. Because of our sins and our trespasses, we were spiritually dead. Dead. In the most disgusting use of the term, dead, nasty, eroding away. If you want a picture of that, look at some of the stories where they talk about um, leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of sin and what it does to the human being. And leprosy is a disease that now we have a cure for. There's not many people that are in developed countries that suffer from it. But leprosy, if it's left alone, slowly takes over and kills the body from the outside in. Leprosy will make it so you can't feel anymore. And so because of that, you'll walk along and you'll hit your hand on something and you'll get a cut and you won't even know it until later you look down you're bleeding and then eventually it gets gangrene and it falls off. That's what sin does to us spiritually. It causes us not to be able to feel. It sears our conscience to the point that we don't have one anymore. 
and then we can't feel, and then our limbs fall off, and that's what we look like to the Lord. But the Lord sees us in our position, and it says there, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what are trespasses and sins? Now, think about deer season, right? There are lots of people that accidentally trespass, you know, or, or they cross over the line, or, you know, they're kind of playing around with the rules about how many can I actually tag legally and who can shoot them, and we won't get into that. But my point is, is that we, a trespass against the Lord is where we've taken our bow and arrow or our gun, we've aimed at the mark, and the mark is God's standard. And when we go to shoot that thing, we release or we pull the trigger, and guess what? We were trying to hit the mark, but what do we do? We do like I did during bow season, we miss. Now, was I trying to miss? Heck no, I wanted a deer, but I missed. That's a trespass. I tried to hit God's standard, and I missed it. Does God count that against us? Yes, because sin is sin whether we meant to or not, right? So then he talks about sins. There's the sins that we were trying to do right, but we did wrong. And then there's the sins where we weren't trying to do right. We, we knew what the standard was. We said, I'm not doing that. I've got a three-year-old. She does that all the time. She knows what the standard is. She goes, uh-uh. You know, that's sin. That's willful sin. That's on purpose. Does God count that against us? Absolutely. So both of them are sin. Both of them, the fruit of that is what? Death, separation from God. So that's the beauty of the gospel. God's forgiven us of our trespasses and sins, the ones we meant to do and the ones we didn't mean to do. So we're covered. He says, who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's made alive, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. You were like a, you were like a, a fish in a stream, and you didn't have the strength to swim upstream. You just kind of let it rip. You kind of went with the flow, and God's called us to go against the flow, and that's hard. So here's the deal. We start this life poverty-stricken spiritually. We got no ability, no power to overcome sin. We've only got our natural nature, our flesh, and that fleshly nature has desires, and it has things that it wants, and we just give in because we have no power to fight it. He says, we walked according to the course of the world, according to our enemy, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So if you ever talk to somebody that said, I don't want to follow Jesus, I want to, I want to do what I want to do. Well, here's the reality. When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're still not doing what you want to do, even though you think you are. Hey, nobody's ruling over me. I rule over me. But here's that's the lie, because really, Satan's ruling over you, and you've got no ability to fight him. You're out. He's in. He's ruling you, and you have no idea. You think you're in control until you do that thing that you've done a million times, and eventually, guess what happens? You can't stop anymore. You're addicted to whatever it might be. You're ruled by your sin, and Satan's like, hey, got him where I want him. Go to the next one. And he's got henchmen. He's got all kinds of demons that will do that. They go out and they do his bidding. They want to lie, steal, and destroy. They want to cause you to think that you're the ruler of your own kingdom. But what you'll find out is that you're not. So he says, 
the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also, Paul includes himself, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We were fulfilling the desires of our flesh, whatever felt good, whatever was expedient, convenient, and of the mind. And we were by nature, this was our nature, children of wrath, just as the others. When we are born, when that little baby is born, it's cute, but it's the cutest little child of wrath that's ever been. Born with a sinful nature. Why is that? Well, go back to Genesis. In chapter 3, we got Adam and Eve, the best we had to offer. God created them from the dust. He pulled the rib out of Adam, created a woman who was comparable to him, his co-responder, these two people that were meant to glorify God in all that they did. And he said, there's one commandment. Don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, many people read that and they go, well, they didn't die. They just got kicked out of the garden. He's talking about spiritual death, his separation from the Lord. So they died. And so in all reality, at that point on, every time they had a child, every time the children after them had that child, there was this rebellion built into them, their sinful nature that they can't shake. It's, it's what they inherit. Now, when you think of an inheritance, you think of something like a house or a neat car, or maybe some money. But you know what Adam and Eve got, gave us? They gave us a sinful nature. Thanks for that. We all wanted that, right? That was on the top ten of the list. Hey, I'd like to struggle with sin my whole life. I'd like to be beat down by my weaknesses. and my. No, we didn't, none of us wanted that. But that's what we got. And so Jesus came along. He said, you know what? I'm going to do something about it. So, he says there, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We sin because we are sinners. It's our nature. Nothing can change that except the Lord. And so, he says, just as the others. So don't think of yourself more highly than those that are still given over to sin. If you ever find yourself saying this, and I do this, so I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am anybody else. When you say, I can't believe they would do that, remember that the only reason you know any different is because God has given you spiritual insight. He's opened your eyes to the truth. So when a sinner sins and they do something that you cannot believe, or it comes across Facebook, it's on a headline, so-and-so did this to their kid or whatever, be aware of the fact that they're doing that because it fulfilled the desire of their flesh. And they have no power over that flesh. But, verse 4, my favorite phrase in the whole Bible, other than, and it came to pass, is, but God. But God. He's explained in the first four verses, three verses, our spiritual poverty. And then in verse 4 through 10, I love this, not only is God greater, not only is he rich in mercy, we're poor, we're destitute, we're beggars, we're dead, and yet God in his love and his mercy, six verses, verses three, wait, one, two, three, one, two, three, more verses than the first part, I can't count. Verse four, he says, but God, 
who is not impoverished, but who is rich in mercy. Let's start with mercy. That is God not giving us what we deserve. God is slow to wrath. He's not willing that any should perish, but that everyone would have the opportunity to receive everlasting life. When he died on the cross, he didn't just die for the chosen few. He died for the whole world is what John 3.16 says. And yet no one's cashing in those checks. Riches for the whole world to be saved. And only certain ones have received it. Is it because they haven't heard Romans 10? It's because we're not telling them? Many of those things. But God who is rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve, because of his great love with which he loved us. Loved is a past tense word. He already did it. He didn't wait for you to come to him and then go, okay, I'll die for you. He wrote the check, left it blank, and we are the ones that are saying, Lord, I come to you, write my name on that thing. I want to receive what that check has to offer, the guarantee of my soul being saved for eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God, in his rich mercy, has provided for us salvation in order to glorify himself. But here's the thing. For all eternity... We are going to be his trophies, not in a case with glass over it, but sitting with him in the heavenly places. He will be right with us, and he'll go, look what I did. And people look at us, and they go, man, you must be good. God loves you. Look at how he's blessed you. You're saved. You probably think you're better than me. And we get to go, no. God saved me because I was a wretch. God saved me because I was poverty-stricken spiritually. I was given over to sin, and I had no other option because I, I couldn't fight it anymore. I couldn't get up. I was dead, and he made me alive. Do you know he can do the same thing for you? And at that point, they're faced with the decision to go, that's nuts, or to go, what have I got to lose? What have I got to lose? So Paul writes the longest sentences in the whole world, so I kept reading. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, while we were at war, enmity with God, that's when Jesus died for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. That's what Romans 3 says. And so he continues and he says, but God that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. That word kindness is the same word for mercy. Compassion in action. God saw our plight and he got down and dirty. Philippians chapter 2 says that God, though he is the king of all the universe, he left his throne, came down to earth, put on flesh, nasty decaying, sweaty, 
stinky, wearing out flesh that can be cut and marred and hurt, he became weak and he came down to us so that he could die in our place. For by grace, he says, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm going to take just a few minutes and go to Genesis chapter 11. He says he's prepared good works for us to walk in them. So dead men can't walk. Since we've been raised in Christ, we can now walk in the newness of life he's given us. But in Genesis chapter 11, and this may seem obscure, but I was reading this with Lucy last night, about the Tower of Babel. How many of you guys remember that story? Tower of Babel. Everyone remembers the story of Noah. Whether you've seen the movie or not, erase the movie from your mind. It's not biblical. But in Genesis chapter 10, uh, really before that, God made a promise to Noah. God flooded the whole earth, but he saved Noah through the ark. That ark was to point to Christ being our ark to get us through destruction and wrath. But my point is, is that after the ark landed on Mount Ararat and all the, the eight people got out, I think, and then all the animals got off two by two, the ones they didn't eat. Then what happened is in the Tower of Babel, the story in chapter 11, says the whole earth had one language. Remember, there's still one people. They'd always been from one, essentially from Adam and Eve, right? And so it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they lived there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they made bricks And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for our God? No. Now remember, these are the people that came from Noah, a godly line. The best the whole world had to offer was Noah. And his descendants said, hey, let us make a great name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They said, we're going to stay together. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. You say, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? People make towers all the time. Well, here's the deal. If you read that, it says that they used asphalt for mortar. And it's the same word that was used in Genesis where they built the ark. And God said, make the ark out of gopher wood and then put asphalt or pitch on it, tar and pitch. Well, what does tar and pitch do on a boat that's made of wood? Keeps it from leaking water. So water can't get in the boat, and they can be saved through it. So they took that, they said, let's make this building out of brick. Let's use tar and pitch on the building so that it's so tall we can go to the top, and if it ever floods again, guess what? We've saved ourselves. You think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, First of all, they should have known that God said he would never again judge the world by water. So it was dumb. But second of all, they were trying to get to heaven without God helping them get there by their own works. Right? And we do that. We trust in a a character attribute or 
a system of morality or we trust in a job or we trust in our good reputation or you know, all these things we put our trust in are just big buildings trying to get to heaven on our own. And what God says is, I, you don't need to sweat and make bricks and cover the thing in your own works and tar and pitch. I've provided a way to get you there where you don't even have to climb. You just have to follow the one I sent, Jesus. And so Lucy and I were talking about that last night, and even my daughter, I said, can we get to heaven by building a ladder tall enough or a building tall enough? And she goes, no, we can't get there. I said, how do we get there? And she, of course, knows all the Sunday school answers, and she said, Jesus. Now, we overcomplicate it. Well, I've got to go to church this many times, or I've got to uh, tithe this much, or I've got to, and, and it's not about that. Those are all fruits. Those are all things that show that we're trusting the Lord with our finances and with our time and with our talents. But Jesus paid it all. We are already everything we can be in Christ. We don't need to build a building. We don't need to do a system of what we would call good works, which are actually bad works. He actually has saved us. And it says there in chapter 2, verse 8, by grace. Grace means God's unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, Another way to say it is mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. And grace is us getting what we don't deserve. You know, uh, many of us have said, you know what, I'm not going to go spank my kid because I want to give mercy. But many of us, when our kid does something wrong, we wouldn't go, hey, let's go out to eat. Let's do something special. No, we, we deal with the consequences, right? But we, many of us, we don't go, hey, I'm going to give you grace. You just did this thing. You broke your brother's or your sister's or my thing. You know what? I'm going to buy you one. That's not how we work. But God, who is rich in mercy, he saved us by grace through faith. So we have to trust in the gift that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone would boast or brag about it. For we are his workmanship. The word there for workmanship is poema. And it means masterpiece. It's like if you Google online and you you go to the the cathedral that has the Michelangelo, is the Michelangelo did, did the, the Sistine Chapel, he did the whole ceiling. It's a masterpiece. Did you know that God calls you a masterpiece? He doesn't call you like, you know, one of those DIY Pinterest projects where, you know, you kind of followed all the rules. He, he made you specifically. He handcrafted you. You weren't on an assembly line. He's done everything he's done to you purposely, and for a reason, but also he sees you as a masterpiece. Now, how many of us in here, don't raise your hand, feel like a masterpiece most days? But that's, God, well, that's what God sees in you when you put your faith in his son. He sees a masterpiece. Not just like something that somebody painted and put on Facebook, but like Sistine Chapel kind of stuff. Amazing works that people will look at forever and go, Wow. They did that by hand? And that's the beauty of it. God doesn't just do that so that we can be in a shelf with glass over us, but then he says we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ for good works. We have purpose, meaning. 
And then he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is our job in salvation? To receive it and to open it. If you give somebody a gift on Christmas, they don't open it, they never receive it, right? But then we have to walk in the salvation. It means that we have to know what it is, receive it, embrace it, realize that we are masterpieces, and then also realize that he's handcrafted us for a purpose. He says, which God prepared beforehand. When God sought out to save humanity, he did it, but then he also, he didn't stop there and go, okay, I'll save them and then see what I'll do next, plan B. He said, I'll save them, and then I want so-and-so to do this, and I want so-and-so to do this, and I want so-and-so to do this. He already had it planned out. So when you get saved, there's already a list of to-do lists. But we don't have to get out the list and check it off and sweat about it. We just got to walk in it. You know, my daughter gets up in the morning. She doesn't have to stress about having clothes. She doesn't have to stress about having a warm house. She's just got to get up and be my daughter. Now, some of there's responsibilities in that, right? So the question is, who are you? What has God saved you for? And do you recognize that you weren't a prize to get before he made you a masterpiece? That's not a question. That's just a statement. God didn't save you because you were like a prize. He saved you because you were dead. And he gave you life. And he gave it to you for a reason. So spend this week asking this question. God, why did you save me? What do you want me to do? And if you're already doing some of those things, awesome. But if you're not, and you're, you're still struggling with that, and you're frustrated, ask him. He wants to tell you. He prepared it before you were born. Look at Jeremiah. I probably shouldn't go there because I don't know what chapter it is. Or Yeah, we'll stop there. Jeremiah. I don't remember where it's at. It's okay. Let's pray.